Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We're focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, Carter Clues. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Carter Clues, the godfather. Carter Clues, the author of The Overwhelming Inundation, Theory of Promotions, also knows where all the bodies are buried in D.C. There's a lot of them. He is a veteran political marketing operative whose Washington experience spans more than 50 years. He began his political career by helping the National Right to Work Committee increase its membership base from 40,000 to 1.2 million. As a director of communications for the U.S. Senate Majority Conference in the early 80s, he pioneered satellite communications and direct audio feeds nationwide. Turning his attention to the private sector, Mr. Clues wrote the only billion-dollar infomercial in TV history. That was a tongue twister for me. Only billion-dollar infomercial in TV history. He also helped trigger an avalanche in offshore timber investments. Most recently, Mr. Clues created and directed the communications program that moved Judicial Watch from relative obscurity to the most widely recognized political organization in Washington. Now with Constitutional Rights PAC, Quote, we are not revolutionaries or reformers. We are restorers. We believe the best way to reconcile the government with liberty today is by returning to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. In 2021, Clues founded the Offshore Club, the nation's leading international organization for helping followers find homes in Central and South America. In less than a year, the organization has grown to more than 100,000 members. The club is the only offshore organization that provides its members a free daily newsletter, as well as daily podcasts featuring many of the world's leading international experts on living the good life at a great price throughout Latin America. Hello, Mr. Cruz. How are How you? you? I am well. Thank you. Thank you. That was very kind of you. I could have went great. on for the whole 35 minutes because you are distinguished, but that's the best I can do. Thank Hope you. you liked You're it. very right. kind. That was wonderful. So, you were credited by World Tribune newspaper with pioneering online political PR. Tell us what that is and how you came up with it. Well, the back about, uh, geez, had to be 15 years or so ago, I went with a group called Americans for Limited Government, Steve. And uh, I realized then people were still sending out news releases in paper envelopes and all, which I had done in my earlier years. And I realized, you know what? Not we can do all of this online now. We can, I just have to get the media list, which I did at a company called Decision, and uh, start sending everything out over over the uh, through the internet. And then I realized I can even do better than that. In today's world, any organization can be your own media, BYOM, that no longer are those who controlled the TV towers and the radio towers in full charge that any of us can have programming. And that's what we mean by pioneer, pioneering in ourselves. And, uh, you know, obviously I was helped along because I had been in the infomercial industry and we blew network television programming out of the water. You mentioned the, uh, the billion dollar infomercial, uh, some of your, your, listeners are going to remember you may remember it was called the psychic friends network mm -hmm. and it was with Dion warwick we had 10 million regular viewers so we blew by regular network programming and we were the only tv show in the world on 24 hours a day other than i love lucy <laughs> this is back in the 80s okay uh the reruns of lucy were just everywhere so that's what we mean by pioneering that whole concept of of be your own media it's it's all new now and you know what's exciting to me steve and i'm glad you brought it up is the fact that <clears throat> i got called up by a big newspaper recently to come and advise them on what they needed to do to move forward. And I said, I can give it to you in one word, podcast, podcast. I said, let me tell you something. Wish I thought Pod of that. Oh my God. Look, <laughs> I, t I said, podcast are going to replace network television totally. If somebody came to me and said, Carter, we've got a great opportunity for you to get bargain prices on investing in stock in Fox or CNN or any of those, I'd say, 
I'd rather invest in toenail fungus. Okay. <laughs> yes, they're done. People are tired of it. The podcast world is exploding. It's going to get bigger and network television is going to go the way of the, the dinosaur and the dodo bird. Thank God. And the Betamax. Um, you won the, the prestigious Betamax. NIMA award for the infomercial script of the year. Yes. Roland Martin's helicopter lure. And like you said, you wrote the billion dollar uh, infomercial physic psychic friends network with Dion Warwick. So, yeah. and, and Steve, the producer here, who's not on screen, he wrote a book about podcasting before podcasting was cool before Incredible. I made it super cool. Yeah. So there he is. Um, hey, we, we got, we got some pioneers right here and I hope you're right. I hope I get uh, Dion Warwick type numbers someday in the future. I, I um, have no doubt you will, by the way, the info, the, the fish, the infomercial on fishing that I won the award for the key to that success. And we sold 40 million fishing lures and I'm going to give you the name that you'll probably recognize who was the key to the success. Roland Martin was the Mickey Mantle of fishing, bass fishing. So that was big, but it was the guy I got to be on with him who blew it out of the water. And that was a guy named Jerry Clower. I don't know whether you remember Jerry Clower. He was the greatest country comedian in history. Steve, huh. I swear to God, he could read the phone book and you would roll over laughing. <laughs> he, he was that And once he was on there, everybody would, the, the infomercial, people just wanted to watch it to watch Jerry because he'd ad-libbed through the whole thing. One time he said to me back in those days, for some reason, I was wearing like a gold necklace and gold rings and bracelets. And Jerry was very religious. He was Southern Baptist. He said, Cotter, Cotter, uh, you're wearing too much jewelry. Down where I come from, we call that a sign of worldliness. <laughs> wow. All right. Well, let's go all the way back to the beginning. Um, from yes, what I could were. understand, you began your career with the legendary committee to reelect the president, where you worked yes. directly with Richard Nixon and his top staff. I went to that bastion of accurate information, Wikipedia, I'll admit, uh, which I usually don't do. My daughter's not even allowed to do it for school. But under all the president's men are all their 1972 positions, and there are about 30 of them. Good news is you aren't listed, but because you probably don't want to be associated. But was was Nixon an underrated president that got a raw deal from the lawyers in Massachusetts and Ted Kennedy after his landslide election? Yeah, I think he absolutely was. Now, he was never a person who, when you were around him, appeared real comfortable in his skin. And that worked against him tremendously. That's one of the reasons they were able to frame him the way they did. He was not real likable, but he was a brilliant man. He was a tremendous uh, strategist and and he was a good, decent guy. He was a good, decent guy. And we had, uh, you know, one of the things I did was set up the, the press conferences where people endorsed him with Dr. Ralph David Abernathy and just others who were just a parade of the people because, and they would make it clear to him, they liked him. My favorite, by the way, was James Brown, the godfather of soul, right? Oh, yeah. Ah. And yeah, ah, when he came <laughs> in and he's, he, he was like five feet tall, right? And uh, I noticed that he was looking, uh, that I had, he was looking down on me. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm 5'10". How does this guy's, and it was because he would get two inches from you and lean way back while he's talking to you. I'm here to endorse Richard Nixon. (laughs) It was a a great experience, and it was a great organization that committed to reelect the president, probably the best political organization in history. And then they framed it, and um, Nixon had nothing to do with any of that. I I don't think John Mitchell did. I worked with Mitchell, who was distinctly unfriendly. (laughs) Being on the elevator with him was frightening. In a way, the first televised debate with JFK and Nixon was like an infomercial. Did you see? Yes. Did you see the same? Uh, I mean, you were there with the same weaponization of law and politics, like we saw in Watergate. Um, today, we call that lawfare. Do you see that today? Oh, we we see it in spades today. We see it uh, beyond anything that that the uh, that anyone ever imagined. Because now you have the White House, the Biden administration, actively involved in it. You know, you you have an administration there where we have a man who is clearly has toxic dementia. He very rarely knows what's going on with him, and he has turned the administration over to a group of thugs. A group of fascist thugs uh, in the, you know, 
the, the, look, Mary Kimler, as I call him, Mary Garland and Christopher Ray are the two most frightening people in American history. They you, they use the law to bludgeon anyone who disagrees with them. And and that is all done. Is Biden aware of it? I'm not even sure he is. I'm sure he'd approve of it if he knew. But the State Department is in the hands of Victoria Nolan, um, Blinken and Jake Sullivan. All of whom, and everybody I just mentioned, are protégés of one person, and that's Barack Obama. So that's Mary, Mary McCord way. and uh, Avril Raines, who we never hear from because they're the shadowy folks. But before yes. we get to today, and there's a lot. Yes, to cover, there we go. I did want to know, so from Ford to Carter and then Reagan, how did the Republicans shake off the Nixon scandals and anti-war protests to usher in Reagan so quickly? You would have thought that after Watergate, I would have thought, since I was just a baby, there would have been a long tail and, and Republicanisms would have been sort of out for a while. But Reagan was able to come rushing right back in in, in record time. How, how did how did he do it? Well, I think, you know, you know, I, I had the the the, uh, the good fortune to work with Reagan. And I think it was largely because of Reagan, Steve. Uh, God blessed us with a man with a very uniquely likable personality. And I think that played a huge role. You know, I tell people in marketing that people follow people, people follow people. And so Reagan was so likable and so affable that the American people put aside all the ugly politics that we'd endured leading up to him. And they just liked Ronald Reagan. And I know that, you know, I worked with a guy named Frank Mankiewicz. I don't know whether you remember Frank. I do. Frank yeah. was yeah, Bobby Kennedy's press secretary. He's the one that announced when Bobby died. And uh, Frank was a communist. I mean, there was no doubt. I worked with him in, in public relations at Gray and Company in Washington in 1980. And, uh, and, he said, and he said exactly what I just said. He said, look, I don't agree with anything about Reagan, but he is the most likable president in history. And that's how he got elected. And he said, he said, and I know, he said, I'm telling you, he said, right now, he said, I know that if right now they walked in the Oval Office and said to Ronald Reagan, oh, man, there's been a terrible mistake. It turns out you actually lost the election. He'd say, well, Mommy, I, I guess we're going back to California. And he said, that'd be it. And that's so that's Steve. I think it was on the back of that one man being likable and wow. affable. Yeah. And how about Speaker of the House? Do you have a favorite Speaker of the House that you saw or worked with? Because obviously um, the president always gets the press, but there's always a speaker of the house there to either work with or against. Well, the, you know, I got to be honest with you. I didn't spend a lot of time on the house side because in the Senate, I worked in the Senate. I was director of communications for the Senate majority. And we thought we were better than the house people. So we didn't, we didn't go to the other side of the hill to visit with them very often. Uh, <laughs> but I, I honestly, as much as I hate to say it, I would say, that you know, I worked with uh, Newt Gingrich, and uh, and when when Newt was being honest on those rare occasions, and when he was being sincere and actually doing what he would say, what he said he was going to do, he was pretty good. He was pretty good, and that's the last one I remember that was any good. Okay. You know? Well, he did have a success by bringing the Republicans back from the wilderness after a long period of time, and that that's a that'll always be in the history books as a win. Um, have you met Donald Trump? And and everyone I've met who has met him and tells the truth says he's a great guy. Is he genuinely nice? Do you know him? Have you met him? I, you know, I, I've only met him in passing, and he was he was very likable, nice guy, very down to earth. I think that's his forte. Um, and I I can't say I know him, and I, I've never really worked with him. You know, um, but in in meeting him in passing, he was just exactly what you see. You know, kind of a hail fellow well met. He I think he likes people. He likes yeah. people. Yeah. So based on what you said about Nixon and Reagan and maybe some dueling styles there, um, I've said for a long time that the Trump years reminded me more of Nixon years than Reagan and not Watergate, just the way he he led, let's just say, likable, affable, could get it done. Um, and, you know, Reagan shamed the Berkeley protesters as governor, but it was Nixon trying to run the country at the time that, that actually, you know, was able to get us past that. Do you think Trump was more like Nixon or more like Reagan? Just from your observation, since you didn't know. Um, neither. 
I would say that in terms of <clears throat> he was more combative, far more combative than Reagan was. Reagan would never have said the have, had done the nasty tweets. It just was not his nature. Uh, Nixon wouldn't have either, for that matter, because he just never was personally involved enough to personally attack people. Um, you know, Trump kind of just cuts his own swath. I think in terms of liking people, I think he's more like Reagan, to be honest with you. Mm -hmm. uh, Nixon did not dislike people, but Nixon just was not a an affable person. He, everything was very formal with Nixon. And I think in terms of the informality and the liking people and somebody you'd enjoy, let's put, let's put it this way. Somebody you'd enjoy having a beer with, yeah, Reagan and Trump uh, are alike in that manner. But in terms of the combativeness, you, you just would never have seen that with Reagan. It was just not his nature. Nixon um, or Reagan? Uh, oh. You would have never seen it with Reagan or, or Nixon, oh. either oh. one. Nixon oh, the combative, just, sorry, the combative. Yeah, right. the combative side. Nixon just because it was not in his nature to get personal about anything. Yeah, uh, I had read that he was so, um, he always felt like an outsider coming from Southern California, from Whittier, from, from you know, being a Quaker. And then when he got amongst the elites in D.C. and the power brokers of Boston and those lawyers, he just, he was a fish out of water. He didn't like it. So he didn't want to be around them and they didn't want to be around him. No, he was, at Reg, uh, uh, Nixon was kind of a fish out of water everywhere, to be honest with you. Hmm. He just was not comfortable around people. Um, and it didn't mean he didn't like people, you know, we, you know, I've, I've watched the interviews where he talked about his relationship with John Kennedy, for instance. And, and he says, uh, that he and Kennedy, he said, we, uh, uh we were friends. We were friends. Uh, now I don't want you to think that we associated a lot with each other. I mean, that, that was just his way. And, and, uh, and I think he was that way with everybody. He was, he was friends, but wasn't close to anybody just wasn't okay. close. I don't All even right. think he was close to his own wife. Uh, the only person <laughs> I ever knew he was close to was a, a journalist named Ralph DeTaladano. Ralph was a great journalist back in the uh, 60s, 70s, into the 80s. And uh, Ralph and he were very good friends until he, Ralph liked to drink. And I'm at the, at the bar at the National Press Club one day. He made a joke that, uh, you know, he's that, Dick's not even close to Pat, Pat, his wife. He said, as far as we know, they've only only uh, had sex twice. And <laughs> it was a joke and Nixon never spoke to him again. <laughs> that, was the end. that was the end of their relationship. Nixon, he, he just, Nixon could not, uh, he was not affable. He's just yeah. not affable. They only had one daughter, so I guess that would probably be. Uh, twice, close, they have two. Oh, oh sorry. Two daughters. Well, Pat, there you go. Then that would be accurate, I guess. Yeah, it was, yeah I think he was accurate. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. Media, so I could the, see where he would definitely not uh, fit in with the 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 drinking and and glad no. handing crowd. So okay, that was no, his downfall. No. And so what his other downfall was obviously that as an administrator, he let a lot of people underneath him do the work, and they are the ones who got him into trouble. A little bit like Ulysses S. Grant, and maybe even Reagan to some extent with the Iran Contra situation. Maybe with Trump, with having to go through so many different attorney generals, chief of staff. He he, he was had a big turnover so the whole idea that personnel is policy they had very bad people on their staff whereas what you said about biden they're all on the same reservation these guys are talking oh. the same talk he doesn't have yeah. to do anything it's like a pull-up bureau so your pack uh constitutional rights um uh we see blm and antifa in the streets looting and burning and it's about the Bill of Rights. Aren't the Bill of Rights for everyone? And is there anything in there that these grievance groups have a good point about that needs some updating or repealing to help some repressed classes? Or are you behind the letter of the law, all amendments and constitution um, as is? Steve, I got to be honest with you. I don't think in America today there are oppressed classes. I just don't. Um, you know, we the I think the the, the victimization um, industry has blown all, all out of proportions. I do not think black people in America are oppressed. I don't think they have been oppressed for decades now. And and let me give you a little insight. The you know Americans are not crazy about Biden letting 11 million illegal aliens invade our country, but even the Latinos, even those invading, are not oppressed. 
by the American people. The American people are very kind-hearted. And here's how I know they're not oppressed. My wife is Honduran, okay? My wife is Honduran. She is a she's a not an illegal alien. She she matter of fact, uh, three weeks ago she got her American citizenship. Wow. Um, yeah, thank God. And uh, she was thrilled. But she's lived here six years now. I have never in those six years, and if she were standing here, she'd say the same thing. And by the way, when I say my wife is Honduran, my wife is not one of those that you'd look at and say. You're sure she's a Latina? My wife looks like she just got off the banana boat, okay? Black hair, olive skin, brown eyes, and she would tell you what I'm telling you. In those six years, she has never heard an unkind word or been treated as anything other than just another person in line at the supermarket. Yeah. So she would only be treated badly if she was running for office and she was a Republican. Otherwise, yes. she's uh, Yes, then she'd alone. be under arrest, yeah. Then she... <laughs> Then she would be deported. And the, the, the irony of it is that if she, you know, it, it, we paid $25,000 to get her citizenship. Wow. Massive amount of money. And all her friend, all, all of her friends and relatives are illegal aliens. And they kept saying to her, what's wrong with you? You don't have to do that. And to make it worse, if she did anything wrong, while she was trying to get her citizenship or her green card, she would wow. be sent back. Gone, yeah. And they can do whatever they want and yeah. are protected by our laws. So no, I don't think I don't think there is oppression in this country. As a matter it's of fact, it's always a bad precedent when the very first act you commit in a new country that you're going to call home, that shining city on a hill, is you break the law by coming in through the the back door, whereas your wife did it the hard way through the front door and earned it and probably right. loves it a lot more. You know the battle has been around in the, in this country around the 10th Amendment for a long time, which is basically the feds versus the states. Who gets the powers not delegated to the U.S. by the Constitution? Uh, and it's reserved to the states. That's why Roe was overturned. But, but then you get governors like Whitner in Michigan or Newsom in California or Inslee, God forbid, in Washington that took emergency powers in a pandemic for a thousand days when no counties had any COVID left. It's not perfect, but... What is your PAC doing to ensure that the, the the rules that we do have in place stay in place and are for the greater good? You know, it's, it's a daily battle. It's a daily battle working with members of Congress who are on the right side of the ledger on these issues, uh, opposing those who are fighting. Like we'll begin now very soon uh, trying to go out into the districts. There are about We've targeted about 20 districts that we believe can turn from Democrat to Republican, okay? And that's really key, but it's even more so is finding Republicans who are not going to act like Democrats, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. we, now, we now know that everything that people like me said about Kevin McCarthy for years, that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing, that he was a traitor to everything we believe in, that he was a rhino, is true because he went over to England and announced that he's really a Democrat at heart. So, you know, that's California. Kev. Yeah, he was it was yeah. uh, it was obvious for sure. Yeah. He he said, I'll never quit the American people. And then as soon as he got over his peak of uh, anger, he said, I quit. So, yeah, he I quit like, and left the, the sky the, and dry. The one I don't like is the 17th. Uh, do you like direct election of senators or do you agree with me? It opens the door for corruption to even more politicians in D.C.? I, I agree with you 100%. I think there was a reason they, they set it up. The founding fathers set it up the way they did. And I think, you know, it made it so it was easier to control who got into office. We have very little control now. We have very little control. Look, I'm in Pennsylvania. The people in this state now know it doesn't matter how they vote, that the, the government in this state are, is going to corrupt the election. I mean, we had a law in this state that you could not have absentee ballots without verified signatures. So Governor Wolf, Tommy the commie, as we called him, just obviated the law. He said, no, we're not going to go by that in order to use fraudulent ballots in the middle of the night to defeat Donald Trump. Now we have a governor, another Democrat, who just passed a signed into law that uh, – Illegal aliens can go get a driver's license, which they can then use to vote, and they can drive as illegals. 
It's going to so, be very difficult to clean up these messes, I, I'm afraid. You know, and we see the same thing with judges. In Washington, they are elected and rule 99% of the time with progressive donors, where in Tennessee, where I am, they're appointed by the governor. So again, not perfect, but at least the governor's interests can be seen in the judges he appoints by past governors, maybe even checked and balanced, I guess. Um, right. I just don't, and I don't like senators becoming presidents. You know, Gore would have been a disaster. Obama, Kerry, Gore. McCain, JFK, LBJ. They just talk, talk, talk like Warren and Biden. They don't lead. Governors are better because they can administer. So you got your Reagans and even Bush, you know, he got messed up with 9-11. Is there a governor today that you have your eye on as a future star? You know, actually, <clears throat> I still... Uh, like like DeSantis, okay? I think he made a terrible mistake running for president. Hor he was not ready for prime time. He's now proven that over and over again. Uh, I think if he would have waited and got some more seasoning, that he eventually could have been an excellent uh, nominee for president. But uh, he has just butchered himself. One thing, the problem he has is the man has no personality, and he needed those extra years to learn how to at least act like you have a personality. I'll give you now. You got you guys may if you can identify with this, you're going to start nodding your head. When I was a kid, raised in Baltimore City, I did nothing but played sandlot baseball. Okay, that was my life. And there is nothing more boring on the face of the earth, and this is proven in the major leagues too, than a second baseman. Okay. And DeSantis, to me, is the quintessential second baseman. <laughs> they never get the ball hit to him. You don't even know they're there most of the game. <laughs> and he, I, when I look at DeSantis, all I can think is when I played shortstop on the Sandlots, he's the guy I would hope covered second when we were going to do a double play if he happened to show up. Yeah, right? Sounds like and, uh, and, Mike Pence. He, he could have made a perfect vice president, too. Yes, um, he could have. Yeah, he could have. I don't know if you know him. He, he lives closer to you than I do, but I really like the North Carolina Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson. He seems like he tells it like it is way better than Nikki Haley, Governor, uh, for <laughs> me at least. Bill <laughs> Lee here in Tennessee. It's yeah. thin, I know, but um, if we're, if I if I was going to choose an administrator for the future, the, he seems like somebody to watch. Absolutely. Um, so at the at the at the Senate conference, you uh, introduced 40 new communications programs, including the first ever satellite feeds directly from the U.S. Senate, which I guess became C-SPAN, maybe the first radio actual actuality system and the first right. nationally distributed public access program. So here's my question for you. Right. I think 24 hour cable news, starting with CNN and expanding to MSNBC and now Fox and now everything, really was a really, really, really bad thing for the culture and society because they ran out of news to tell when the war was over. And then they started talking about blue dresses and uh, personalities up on the hill and who's dating who and all this you know, drama. How do you feel about the um, politics is downstream from culture all of a sudden becoming culture is downstream from politics? Um, well, I, I think you're right. I, th I think that's uh, that's part of our problem. I think that the CNN did elevate politicians, which is the last thing we ever needed. Uh, you know, I got to be honest with you. I am. I think that the maximum term for anybody that comes to Washington should be six years and go home total six years and go home. And I also think I also no think. Yeah. Yeah, I also think there should be salary caps. I think a member of the House should make the exact same income as the average income in the district he represents and not be, not be allowed any outside income during the time he's in Washington because it's time for them to learn how the rest of us have to live, okay? Yeah. And stop the stock trading, yeah. Stop the insider stock trading. Yeah, there was a great, wasn't that a great one? They got caught doing it. So they passed a bill in what, 2012, saying no more of that. And then after everybody lost attention in 2013, they they, they uh, did away with the bill. They reversed yeah. the bill. So these so they guys, just, they, they just opened accounts in their kids' names. They didn't care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they don't care. And so I think what you have 
is a situation now where we have to get the politics under control so that they do not want to be in Washington, that they come here to serve, but they really want to go back home. And for those who don't want to, we need to start telling them, well, you better, you just need to leave. And that's term limits. I think that uh, the Congress could have term limits. They could do it. Yeah. Biden and has been they, there since I was four years old. So, and I'm, I'm going to be 54. So he's, yeah, he's, he is the poster boy for been there too long, never done a darn thing, never earned a, a, a real living, made a payroll, hired or fired anybody that wasn't just staff. So tell us about Judicial Watch. I, I find it interesting listening to Tom Fitton, um, how legalistic his mind is, but he's not even a lawyer. Larry Clayman no. is, but Tom is the face of Judicial Watch. What's he like? Tell us about Judicial Watch and how you got involved. Well, I went there because they needed to, they were, you know, they needed marketing. And so that's why I went there and we created a tremendous number of new programs and, and, uh, you know, started their video feeds, the whole nine yards. Um, Tom is, uh, he's a, an administrator. The, 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 the person who I admired most when I was there was a, a lawyer named Ramona Kotka. Okay, there were two people who really are responsible largely for the successor Judicial Watch. Ramona Kotka is the attorney who almost every major case there, she's the one who has done the, the who has uncovered the wrongdoing by the government. Hillary Clinton's emails, that was Ramona. She went and she started digging and she had, she filed a Freedom Information Act and saying she wanted all the emails concerning, I think it was uh, the, the situation, um, it, it goes right through my mind now, where, where the ambassador was killed and all that, the terrorist attack. Uh, and she said, I want all the emails that, that deal with that. Benghazi. And, yeah. Benghazi, and there were no Hillary Clinton emails. And Ramona said, excuse me, I said, I want them all. That includes the Secretary of State. And they said, there are none. And Ramona blew that wide open. I mean, she is an incredible person. The other person is their director of investigations, a guy named uh, uh, Bill Marshall. Everything you see where there's some massive story broken is because Bill did investigations and realized, wait a minute, something is being covered up here. Then someone like Ramona filed the Freedom of Information Act. So it's a, uh, uh, I think <laughs> if, the, if all you had was those two, we could have done what, what we did in terms of marketing and help people understand that uh, they were uncovering some pretty important stuff. Yeah, they really yeah. did. And we wouldn't know nearly as much as we do now without them. Um, and we are seeing some never before done to a former president stuff like including nixon he lived a long time after retirement yeah. as did ford all these lawsuits piling up against trump even that clever dc lawyer abby lowell trying to rope him into hunter's gun charges saying he and bill barr politically targeted him that's what he said today at the podium saying they make it dark about his dad when it's you know it's private business yeah. or whatever i don't know it's kind of funny do you think trump will be on the ballot in december yeah yeah i do i think uh I think Trump, Trump has a following that uh, <clears throat> they're not going to abandon him, and they can, they know these lawsuits are bogus, and they certainly are bogus. Um, and you know, I have a <clears throat> Steve, I have a a vacation home in West Virginia. Okay, it's in a uh, it's it's in a I, I tell people it's a glorified trailer park, right? There are 1,500, 1,500 homes in the woods in West Virginia. And let me tell you something. Those people are going to vote. If Trump died, they would still vote for Trump. Okay? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of loyalty Donald Trump has. So I think he will be on the ballot. I think that, that he will. And remember, Trump can run from jail if he has to, if they're yeah. successful. Lyndon LaRouche did it for my, my entire childhood. Who, Never who? won, but Lyndon LaRouche. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. He did. And uh, so I don't want to run out of time with you, but I, I do have so many questions. I could have you on for hours, but judicialwatchheritage.org, they seem to be the antidote or foil to like the Southern Poverty Law Center, that anti-free speech censorship outfit that put Judicial right. Watch on the hate list, which is weird. Um, so they are the lawfare outfit with Mark Elias and the Soros DAs. How can a conservative movement, which, you know, Goldwater and Reagan and Newt Gingrich, who you mentioned, and even Nixon carried forward, 
that believes at its core in law and order. That's what the whole anti anti war movement was about, and trying to fix these these um, look the other way judges and and DAs. Let's just call it the weaponization of the authorities, like the NSA and the FBI and the CISA and CIA and the Department of Justice. Even how can that get fixed when they won't let the Republicans lead? You know, it is a you've nailed a very serious problem here. And a large part of the problem we have right now is that much of the conservative leadership in Washington is not fighting back tooth and nail anymore. Okay. You know, when I came to Washington, first came to Washington in 19, uh, in the seventies. Okay. We had a group of conservative leaders who were as hardcore as the day is long. And they were fighters, Richard Vigory, Howie Phillips, um, uh, Terry Dolan at Nick pack. I knew all of them and they, and, and, and uh, Paul Weirich and these guys were they were cutthroat. They were cutthroat. I can remember seeing Paul Weirich say to members of the Senate, we put you here and we'll take you out if you don't get in there and fight for what we believe. You're not getting any of that from conservative leaders in Washington now. And that's a very serious problem. Conservative Inc. is abandoning the fight. And so you have all these politicians there who are just you can't trust them look mike johnson <laughs> mike johnson i'm waiting for him to do something right i'm waiting for him to take a stand and stand by it okay and yeah. it happens over and over and over again because you know everett dirksen back when i first went to washington i was in a meeting and everett dirksen said he was the senate minority leader he said when i feel the heat i see the light okay these guys don't feel the heat anymore. And that's why we need a whole new batch to go in there of conservative politicians. We need a new breed of conservative leaders in Washington who say we are here to win. You know, the other day I was interviewed by somebody and I said, you know, the problem is we have too many, too many good losers now amongst in, on the conservative side. They're good losers. They reach across the aisle. And I, and I said, I remember Leo DeRocher. Leo DeRocher was a great baseball manager when I was a kid. He's famous for saying, nice guys finish last. But the thing he said that I love is, you show me a good loser and I'll show you an idiot. Okay? <laughs> well, you know, you listed a, you went down a list of anti-communists like Nixon, who was at HUAC for Eisenhower. And the institutions yeah. have definitely shown the bruising and battering effects of their long march of communism and what it's done for over 40, 50 years now, you know, Joe McCarthy seemed to have actually understated the problem in government and Hollywood. Yes. Yes. Do you see optimistic signs they are losing by being exposed like presidents of Harvard and Penn who embarrass themselves publicly, or are they winning by taking over the seats of power and are unable to be fired like unanimous vote to keep Claudine Gay at uh, Harvard from all the trustees? Uh, I'll tell you where I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic with people like you, the alternative media. You are out there making a tremendous impact now. You're going to have to be the ones that push the politicians in Washington to make them do right. Mitch McConnell is never going to do anything out of conscience. He is a total sellout artist. Mike Johnson has not impressed me so far. Kevin McCarthy, sellout artist. I can't remember the last time there was a Speaker of the House who didn't sell us out. So it's the alternative media that makes me feel positive. It's the podcast. And I watch them all the time. I'm impressed by them. And I think that our hope lies in the fact that they're the ones that raise hell. They're the ones that raise hell. They're the ones that forced out this vile woman at the University of Pennsylvania. And I still think they may end up getting this nasty woman at Harvard. Um, and, and it'll be the alternative media. It'll be the podcast. It'll be, and I consider, for instance, Epic Times alternative media. They're sound. They, they are out there lead, helping to lead the fight. And there are other organs, World Tribune. Those are the hope we have because it's not going to come from Washington. Well, well there's that Reagan optimism I was hoping for. And he yeah. was a he was a radio announcer for baseball for a while there. But OK, last question. And then I'm out of time. 
Uh, before landing on Tennessee, I took the family almost all over the world looking for what might be next. Canada, Ireland, New Zealand, Australia, Argentina, Israel, places that actually went really insane during COVID. Uh, Tennessee, in my opinion, is the last stand. I don't think there's better for me and my family. But how's life in Central America, uh, Honduras specifically? That's where your um, project is there. Honduras, I, my wife and I own a home in Honduras, and uh, Honduras is a good place. I would buy land in Honduras. I'd advise anybody invest in land in Honduras. Keep in mind, in Honduras, there's nowhere you can have land that is not that is more than 100 miles from the, from the ocean, okay? Ocean, waterfront property, and it goes for nothing. I have a home, a beach home, that up here would cost me three to 400000 I paid 30000 for it, and it's a gorgeous beach home. My front yard is the beach, but the place I'd invest right now, I'm going to shock you. Brace yourself. I tell people now the freest country, the safest country, the country that has the best future is Nicaragua. Nicaragua is a paradise for expats. And or, or, uh, Ortega, yeah, we know he's a dictator. Ortega could care less what you do, okay? All he, you are freer in Nicaragua. During the COVID, you know what he did? He told his people, I'm not getting a shot. I'm not wearing a mask. If you want to, help yourself, but I'm not your grandfather, and I'm not telling you what to do. I love him. All right. Well, Carter, thank you for your time. So much appreciate you taking yeah, it with yeah. us. Uh, we are at the thank end you. here. So tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you and follow you if you do the social media thing or any other projects. Uh, constitutionalrightspack.com. Uh, constitutionalrightspack.com. And come in, sign up for the newsletter, and you'll also get my private uh, daily email that goes out to every member. So I'm looking for – and write to me. Once you come right to my answer, every email and every text message, and you can even phone me. Very so cool. All go. right. Yeah. All right. Well, happy holidays and, and thanks. Thank and lo hello to your lovely wife. Thank you. Thank you. Congratulations for the new citizen. I'm sure she'll <laughs> so, vote the right way in Pennsylvania. Oh, oh believe me, she will. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard, dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof, look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't How you ever did without me? Okay, so I can't sing, but we don't have a bumper today. So welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what do you think of our guest, Carter Clues? Wow, all the way back to Nixon. That, <laughs> who have we ever had that has that history within the political party and yet has moved in such a fashion that he sees the corruption for what it is, he's not banking on any individuals, and he says, invest in Nicaragua. Invest in El Capoco. Invest in uh, um, El Salvador. Get your homes down there for cheap because things aren't what you're told on the news. What an amazing man. And then the, launched the first infomercial. Um, what, that guy's got a lot of experience, Steve. Not I the could, first one, but the one that made the most money. So that's That's bad, right. But, yeah. but amazing. Thank you for yeah. bringing him on. Yeah, it was fun for me because I've read all these books and now I can actually talk to somebody about them. So there's, like you said, not a lot of people left that will will go down that far. Um, the gal who was on for my mom, 92 years old, just turned 93, she she could have talked that way. But anyway. Um, but she I didn't work this. underneath Nixon. No, but she lived it. Oh, she that's in true. California her life. So anyway, yeah. uh, living history, as we say. Um, so I gathered this clip because I love this and we were talking about history. Uh, the powers that be 
of the day looked around to find the smartest sounding guy they could, kind of like me finding the actual smartest guy I could, you, Steve. Um, no, Carter Clues, of course. So <laughs> they came up with Leonard Nimoy, right, who played Spock, the logical half-human, half-alien. Uh, this was 1978. So we're right there at the end of Nixon. Everybody's gloomy. Um, I was seven, so I really didn't care about this, but I did know about it, and I founded it, and he did sound smart. So listen to this, and we'll talk about it. Leonard Nimoy, The Coming Ice Age. Past million years, it has advanced and retreated with clockwork regularity. If we are unprepared for the next advance, the result could be hunger and death on a scale unprecedented in all of history. What scientists are telling us now is that the threat of an ice age is not as remote as they once thought. During the lifetime of our grandchildren, Arctic cold and perpetual snow could turn most of the inhabitable portions of our planet into a polar desert. In 1977, the worst winter in a century struck the United States. Arctic cold gripped the Midwest for weeks on end. Great blizzards paralyzed cities of the Northeast. One desperate night in Buffalo, eight people froze to death in marooned cars. Pat Bushnell was on the road that night. Traffic just absolutely stopped. I was afraid of being stuck in the car all night long with the uh, cold and the wind running out of gas. And then what? I think that if we had to go through a real bad winter, just like we just went through, I think we'd have to think about moving someplace else. Move where? The brutal Buffalo winter might become common all over the United States. Climate experts believe the next ice age is on its way. According to recent evidence, it could come sooner than anyone had expected. At weather stations in the far north, temperatures have been dropping for 30 years. Sea coasts, long free of summer ice, are now blocked year-round. According to some climatologists, within a lifetime, we might be living in the next ice age. Oh, Steve, I remember early 70s, mid-70s. We had some cold winters. Those went yes. away. Sounds bad. I'd, I'd have been very afraid. Well, we're still here, so I hope you didn't hold back on too much heating oil, but... <laughs> It was the fear of the time, and ironically, most of the fakery we hear as symptoms of global warming, more fires, drought, etc., if they were true, would be symptomatic of an impending ice age where less moisture is in the atmosphere, not the greenhouse effect, where more moisture makes for more rain and fewer fires. So they didn't even have their, their analytics right, but they had a good actor, and that's the key here. So next up. We saw Penn president step down to a nice out-of-the-spotlight job, still at Penn, and we've seen a week of defending DEI hire Claudine Gay, 700 letters of support from humanities teachers that think plagiarism is okay now, and the unanimous vote of the stacked trustees agree, but MIT has gotten a pass so far. Let's hear from a young MIT student with a thing to say, and I'll bet she wrote it herself and didn't plagiarize it. Let's hear it. Representative Stefanik for inviting me here today. My name is Talia Khan. I am an undergraduate alumna of MIT and a current graduate student at MIT. I am the daughter of a Jewish mother and an Afghan Muslim immigrant father. I am the proud president of the MIT Israel Alliance. And I am a Jewish student currently immersed in an extremely toxic anti-Semitic atmosphere at MIT. The MIT administration, namely President Sally Kornbluth, has failed to address the crisis of rampant anti-Semitism on campus. There is a radical anti-Israel group at MIT called the CAA. In recent weeks, the CAA's anti-Semitic rhetoric has shifted the culture on campus to such an extreme of intolerance that 70% of MIT's Jewish students polled feel forced to hide their identities and perspectives. An Israeli student whose identity and personal info was sold online for a bounty has not left his dorm room in weeks out of fear due to death threats. For my part, 
I was forced to leave my study group for my doctoral exams halfway through the semester because my group members told me that the people at the Nova Music Festival deserved to die because they were partying on stolen land. After a postdoc at MIT said that Jewish Israelis want to enslave the world in a global apartheid system, he falsely claimed that Israel harvests Palestinian organs and implied that the, quote, average Israeli is a Nazi. The DEI officer of his department replied by telling us that nothing he said was hate speech and that the organ harvesting conspiracy theory was, quote, confirmed. Day after day, the MIT administration has failed to enforce its own rules on anti-Semitic actors, such as the interfaith chaplain intimidating Jewish students, DEI staff publicly declaring that Israel has no right to exist, faculty dismissing student concerns for their safety by telling them that if they are scared, they should just go back to Israel. CAA protesters blocking the hallways, storming the offices of the MIT Israel internship offices and harassing the staff and faculty there, and inviting dangerous outsiders to campus to join them in yelling hateful and violent chants. This is the same climate of anti-Semitism that has led to massacres of Jews throughout the centuries. This is not just harassment. <clears throat> this is our lives on the line. Okay, there we go. She said DEI officer, probably paid six figures. MIT, do you know why Germany has no comedy? No, I didn't even know that Germany had any comedy or didn't have any comedy. I don't, don't know much about don't know they much chased about away Germany. all the Jewish geniuses, basically. That's the point. So my first job had a list of qualities that they wanted in their employees. The company doesn't exist anymore, but Googled up and now gobbled up and now somewhere deep inside J.P. Morgan Chase. But the one I liked the most was mediocrity, meritocracy, not mediocrity, meritocracy. That is one of my favorite words in the dictionary. Anyway, explain to, what it means, Steve, just so those of us who don't. That you rise based on your merit. There not, we go. Not on what we're talking about right now, where a DEI officer tells you that um, you have to be uh, in a box and only think like everyone else, or exactly. else you are bad. You are actually rise up with your mediocrity, your comic genius, whatnot, your brilliance. Um, so, this article written by Anita Kinney and Anthony uh, Pericolo, no offense, I can't spell it, I can't read it, Pericolo. No white faculty allowed. Uh, sorry, Steve, but this is your next door neighbors. At the University of Washington, civil rights laws have not stopped blatant racial discrimination in faculty hiring. A recent internal investigation into faculty hiring at the University of Washington reveals the exhaustive efforts that universities make to discriminate against white job applicants. After the university's Department of Psychology identified a white candidate as best qualified for a tenure track, Professor positions in early 2023, the department's diversity advisory committee pressured the hiring committee to re-rank candidates in accordance with the methodology laid out in an internal handbook titled Promising Practices for Increasing Equity in Faculty Searches so that a black woman would receive the job instead. This handbook obtained by the National Association of Scholars spells out how to exclude candidates of undesirable races and ensure that candidates of preferred races get hired. This is this year, by the way, not 1823. The handbook sheds light on past discriminatory hirings practices in the psychology department. In the 2020-2021 academic year, the department hired only BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, candidates for five tenure-track positions. Delighted by its success in excluding all white candidates, the department's Diversity Advisory Committee commissioned the Promising Practices Handbook as a case study documenting its past manipulation of the hiring process. The handbook served as a how-to manual in the 2022-2023 academic year, the one we're in right now, wow. ensuring that a BIPOC candidate would be hired for the department's only tenure-track professorship that year. First, the handbook advises recruits to prepare for success by developing a strategy for how to hire based on race. To guarantee non-white candidates, recruiters should reach out directly to underrepresented minorities, URM, candidates. The department's search committee sent over 100 personal emails primarily to URM researchers. The handbook carefully ranks favored minority groups, specifically Black, African-Americans, Latinx, Hispanics, 
or American Indian indigenous above less preferred ones, specifically Asian Americans, don't know why, or Middle Eastern Americans, interesting. Next, the handbook recommends drafting job descriptions that match the resume of specific minority candidates. That way the applications will perfectly suit the job posting. Reverse engineering is what I call that. It directs institutions to visualize your ideal candidate and work backwards from there to work your advertisement. If you could pick anyone with an eye toward URM scholars, which current scholars in your field would be the best fit for this job, how do they describe their work and goals? Consider using similar language. Jumping to the end of the article, the University of Washington's investigation exposes how pervasive racial discrimination is on American campuses. The federal and state governments must root out this illegal racial discrimination. If they refuse, then the University of Washington's how-to manual for racial discrimination will effectively function as civil rights law. By the way, you can find articles like that at mcview.us, my daily e-newsletter. You can sign up there and it's free. You're welcome. Uh, how does that happen? How does an entire federal and state-funded institution get away with shit like that? Study Washington Supreme Court analysis finds progressive domination of donations decisions. A ballotopia analysis of Washington State Supreme Court candidate campaign finance and court case outcomes between 2013 and 2022 shows that progressive candidates and causes dominate in the Evergreen State. The online political encyclopedia coded large samples of data, both campaign donors and court case parties and amici, which are briefs, according to progressive versus conservative ideological leaning and 28 different sector or policy categories, according to Balotopia's findings. Get this, Steve. Well, let me put it this way. How many, what percentage of significant contributions towards the campaigns of winning state Supreme Court candidates do you think were progressive sources? What percent of the money that elected progressive Supreme Court justices in Washington state were from progressives? I would say probably 85%. 99% of significant yeah. contributions for the campaigns. The situation was reversed when it came to the other side of the political spectrum with 97% of significant contributions to losing state Supreme Court candidates coming from dun, 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 conservative sources. Okay, see what I'm talking about? Washington is in the worst shape, and it's because of one-party rule like Europe. EU Parliament member Dominique Tarzyski called out all of the left-wing corruption at the European Union. Listen to this, why don't you? It's 60 seconds. Clip three. This dear so-called of so-called rule of law lovers, it's been 365 days since Cottergate exploded. And what have you done? Nothing. What have you done about vaccination scandal in European Commission? Nothing. Oh, sorry, you've done a lot. You've been attacking Polish government for eight years. For eight years. You tried to lecture us. You tried to lecture us about the rule of law. Rule of what? Rule of Corruption, that's what it is. It's your people who were arrested. You trying to lecture Mr. Trump, Mr. Bolsonaro, Mr. Milley. You trying to lecture the whole world, conservative world, about the rule of law. And your people are arrested for corruption. You have no right to lecture us. You have no right to tell us, telling us what the democracy is. You have no right to tell me what the rule of law is. That is why I promise we're going to fight your leftism ideology until the final victory. So help me God. Amen. Poland's a good place these days. I mean, they're fighting yeah. for the right thing. And he talked about lectures. That's what senators do. They all do just that like professors. So you get this. Congress provides $7.5 billion, with a B, for electric vehicle chargers, but so far... Built zero. The sluggish rollout could undermine President Joe Biden's re-election messaging promoting electric vehicles. Congress, at the urging of the Biden administration, agreed in 2021 to spend $7.5 billion to build tens of thousands of electric vehicles, chargers across the country, aiming to appease anxious drivers while tackling climate change. Two years later, the program has yet to install a single charger. States and the charger industry blame the delays mostly on the labyrinth of new contracting and performance requirements they have to navigate to receive federal funds, while federal officials have authorized more than $2 billion of the funds to be sent to states, fewer than half a dozen 
fewer uh, fewer than half of states have even started to take bids from contractors to build the chargers, let alone begin construction. Consumer demand for electric vehicles is rising in the United States. I don't believe it. Necessitating six times as many chargers on its roads by the end of the decade, according to federal estimates, but not a single charger funded by the bipartisan infrastructure law has come online. And odds are they will not be able to start powering Americans vehicles until at least 2024. Jumping to the end again, the punchline charger manufacturers, meanwhile, have had to step up research and development to ensure their federally funded chargers work 97% of the time. The new minimum standard intended to alleviate persistent reliability issues with America's chargers, and they've had to invest in U.S. manufacturing facilities to meet new domestic sources requirements for the equipment. I wonder if they have Faraday's around them because one EMP and we're done. All of that has slowed the process for states to open bidding to build chargers and for companies to place bids, said Patrick Murphy, who is leading the Vermont Agency of Transportation's administration of the funds. This program has suffered from a number of frustrating delays and will still yet, as industry tries to catch up to the rules that were put in place, Murphy said, but we also recognize that those rules will help shape the kind of consistent, convenient national network that we need to grow EV adoption. (laughs) $7.5 billion. We are $33 trillion in debt, yes. shoveling money to Ukraine monthly, and we wonder why ground beef, one pound, costs $5. Biden did that. Stay tuned for my thoughts of the day. Hi, this is Aaron Spradlin with the Mission America Foundation, and you're listening to Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. Welcome to my quotes for the day. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button and follow us. I really hope you like it. The political lesson of Watergate is this. Never again must America allow an arrogant elite guard of political adolescents to bypass the regular party organization and dictate the terms of a national election. Gerald Ford said that. I don't think he would be very happy with today. People have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I earned everything I've got. Richard M. Nixon. The slow rising central horror of Watergate is not that it might grind down to the reluctant impeachment of a vengeful thug of a president whose entire political career has been a monument to the same kind of cheap shot and treachery he finally got nailed for, but that we might somehow fail to learn something from it. Hunter S. Thompson. I think what they learned from it was how to do it again and again and again. I gave them a sword and they stuck it in and they twisted it with relish. And I guess if I had been in their position, I'd have done the same thing. Richard M. Nixon said that. Watergate is a sad and tragic incident in our history. They were wrong, dead wrong. Those men at Watergate, men abused power, but the system still works. Men abused money, but the system still works. Men lied and perjured themselves, but the system still worked. John Wayne. In 1971, Wayne and James Stewart were traveling to Ronald Reagan's second inauguration as governor of California when they encountered some anti-war demonstrators with a Viet Cong flag. Stewart's stepson, Ronald, had been killed in Vietnam in 1969. Wayne walked over to speak to the protesters, and within minutes, the flag had been lowered. Wow, that's power. Wouldn't it be nice if a Wayne of our day did that to the BLM, Antifa, pro-Hamas crowd? bunch of wimps now i can't imagine any of them doing it that's it for this episode thank you carter clue for reminding us because we forgot the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants it is its natural manure thomas jefferson said that what does that even mean citizens must actively participate in government and work to maintain their rights and freedoms y'all ready for 2024 Better get ready. It's coming. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the mcview.us. Don't worry. I'll be here for you. So this is cool. Randy Travis, first TV appearance, 1978. Hope you like it. Peace in our time and glory to God. Take us home, Steve.
at the county fair. They were looking for America behind every turn, flying the very colors that so many love to burn. I'll cruise the countryside with my dad and my brother, row after row of cotton and corn, moving through this place just like. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.